we're going to learn about Tennessee agriculture. We're going to learn about what he does, how he does it, how it's different from what you do. Most importantly, what he joined Extreme Ag to get and give. Welcome to Extreme Ag's Cutting the Curve podcast, where you get a guaranteed return on investment of your time as we cut your learning curve with the information you can apply to your farming operation immediately. Extreme Ag, we've already made the mistakes, so you don't have to. Managing your farm's water resources is a critical component to a successful and sustainable farming operation. Advanced drainage systems helps farmers just like you increase their yields up to 30% with their technologically advanced water management products. Visit ADSPipe.com to see how they can keep your business flowing. Now, here's your host, Damian Mason. Well, greetings and welcome to another fantastic episode of Extreme Ag's Cutting the Curve. We've got Johnny Varell as our guest today. Johnny is a Tennessee farmer and he is an Extreme Ag affiliate. We're happy to have him here. You know, we are a learning and experiential platform. That's what's really cool about this. We bump into people at Commodity Classic, whatever, Farm Progress Show, Ag PhD, Field Day, and... We hear people say, hey, I really like what you do out there because it's informative. It's not over my head. The stuff that is, you always bring it down to me. And also, we bring you a lot of different experiences from different farming operations that you can learn from. Well, we're doing that today. Johnny Varel is a Jackson, Tennessee farm guy who joined Extreme Ag as an affiliate. Why? Why did you join Extreme Ag as an affiliate? Why are you, why are you here, Johnny? I just love the the brotherhood of it. I love the practical farming aspect of where you get to see what everyone's doing all across the country on their farm, like what makes their farm tick, what gives them the cutting edge in their area, and maybe take a few of those things back to my farm to see if they'll work on our farm every day. <clears throat> Tell us about your farming operation. Jackson, Tennessee, it's kind of central, right? Right. We're right outside of Memphis, in between Memphis and Nashville in the state of Tennessee, so in the west part of the state. Um, there's cotton raised around here. So we're in the Northern part of the cotton belt. Um, this farm was actually a predominant cotton farm up until about 2006. And we transitioned into corn, wheat, soybeans. Um, I'm a third generation farmer. My granddad passed away about two years ago. He started this farming operation back in the sixties. And, uh, I still farm alongside my father, Alan, and, uh, we raised corn, wheat, and soybeans. Okay, when I think of obviously history, etc. I mean Memphis, big cotton. I mean, my God, that's like everything you learn about agriculture. The economy of the Mid South, I think, is what we uh, call them. The Memphis is the capital of the Mid South, and then you, you just said something that's on the verge of sacrilege. Right. We stopped producing cotton. I think they should have run your ass out of the state. Once you did that, you should have no longer been allowed to be there. I mean, come on. That's what, that's what the whole, that's what, what are you doing? Why would you quit doing cotton? Well, I was very fortunate. I had a grandfather that didn't tell me, Hey, we got to do it. Like we've always done it. So my granddad was a numbers man. So if I showed him on paper, how we could make more money or the same money and save money while I'm doing it, yeah. he was all about it. And I mean, that's what really allowed us to transition. We started studying and, I guess in the 2000s, everyone started rotating corn into cotton ground and then back to cotton. So we started seeing if we actually put corn on some of our better ground where we always put our cotton, yeah. we can make these top end corn yields. So we started doing that and then we started getting into wheat and it just really allowed us to see that we could transition away from cotton and into, you know, having three or four crops on our farm every year. 
So when I talked about King Cotton and the, you know, the whole history, the Memphis, the Mid-South, when I do speaking engagements in Memphis, I'm always fascinated by that because it's so different from just a couple, 400 miles north of there where I, or 300, whatever it is, where I was raised in, in Indiana. And, you know, there's no cotton where I'm from and, and there's just not that history of this crop. And I've learned a lot about cotton since I joined Extreme Ag as the host and producer of this stuff with Matt Miles. Um, and he said, you know, if you farm for other people, they always wanted you to put cotton in because it was the, it was the bank. Right. Right. So, you, so you always made more money. I mean, it was the, it was the it was King cotton for a reason because it made money. Yeah, and I think for years in the South, it was the King soybean prices came up. Soybean varieties changed. We, we got to where we can make some pretty high end yield soybeans and the corn followed along too. And so it allowed us to really diversify. We actually had cotton the first time since 2006 last year on our farm. And we just kind of got back in it on three or 400 acres to see what we could make if we wanted to get back into the crop. And we had a very successful crop last year. It just, for us, just the, the grain bin system that we have in place now, the grain facility that we have, it really allows us to stay with grain. I know that one of the big things, uh, you know, some of our guys that certainly our followers love to keep up with the agronomics and, and all that because farmers love to farm. And I always bring it back to the business, the money, the return on investment, you know, the economics. This is a business. This is a business. Um, you said that you're fortunate. Your grandfather was not just steeped in tradition, uh, you know, by God, come hell or high water, we're going to grow cotton. That's what we do here. That he actually looked at the, the financials. Um, first off, you're fortunate. And, yeah. and and that's a good thing. Uh, nextly, you said that was 2006 when you did that transition. I'm looking here on screen. You look to me like you're about in your mid-30s. Yeah, I'm, I'm 40 years old. Okay, so you were 24, 25 years old when you guys started talking about this. There's a lot of people that say, hey, it's neat that you have this idea, but you know what? You're in your 20s. Why don't you come back when you've had a few years experience? But you came and said, I really think we should consider transitioning out of cotton. Was it you that led the charge? Was it grandfather? Or was it your father, Alan? No, I would say it's more me. When I went to college in Kentucky, and so I went up there and saw how they were raising corn and wheat on their ground. And, you know, the concept where we are is, you know, 40, 50 bushel wheat was the common thing. You know, we're able to make 80, 90, 100 bushel wheat. So when I went to college up there, I saw how all these guys in West Kentucky were making these high-end wheat yields, kind of brought that back down here. When you look at the numbers, it just really fits well. And it, it allows us to take a harvest, a piece of harvest equipment like a combine and, and go across three or four crops versus going across one like you do with a cotton picker. And I mean, it, cotton picker, you said that you um, dabbled back into a little bit of cotton in crop season 2022. It's my understanding that it's hard to dabble into it because it needs such infrastructure. First off, you've got to have your, a lot of the gins are owned cooperatively. So if you're wanting to produce it, you kind of have to own the right to be able to take your stuff to the gin. How do you dabble in and out of cotton if that's the case? Well, where we are, it's, it's more of a private individual owns the gin. So there's multiple gins in our area. You know, it used to be several in each county. Now there might be one in each county or two in each county. So there are still gyms that are probably on and you could take it pretty much anywhere you want. And I just network with some neighbors and kind of maybe harvested some soybeans for them. And they harvested my cotton for me. Talking I was going to say also a cotton picker, according to Matt Miles, you're talking about like $850,000, $900,000 for a, a cotton pair. That's right. That's right. And, and so this isn't something you've got to have some acres to get over to justify a $900,000 piece of equipment. That's, that's exactly right. Okay. And by the way, am I accurate that that whole thing that there's some areas 
you know, to get your cotton processed, you've got to you've got to have a, a slot, right? I mean, isn't that the case for some places? Yeah, I mean, it just depends. Like I said, where I'm at, it's still more privately owned gin. It's not a lot of co-op gin, so you can pretty much just take it maybe to whoever's going to get to it the fastest or whoever you've got a partnership with, like a relationship with as like a neighboring landowner or something like that. So it just worked out for us very well. Um, so interesting thing to me is that you've, uh, you know, you're not like, uh, 24 anymore. Um, you're 40 years old, you join up extreme ag, you keep up with what we're doing, and then you're obviously going to provide some stuff. So I want you to give me one or two big takeaways you learned before you, uh, joined up with us. And then one or two things you think that, or at least categories you think you can pass on, because there's a lot of things that you probably have to to advise or or provide guidance on based on the things you've done. So the first first one, one or two things that you've gotten from Extreme Ag. You know, the fertility program that some of these guys run is, is an area that I think I can continue working on. And I mean, I think we all can continue working on our fertility programs. It's an evolving thing every year. Uh, prices going up and down of different products that we're using, but just seeing how they do different things. Uh, you know, Chad Henderson might do one thing. Matt Miles does one thing. You go farther north, they do something totally different. That's pretty neat to me because that way I'm not just looking at what we do here in West Tennessee. I can kind of see what some guys literally just a few hours, you know, south or east of me are doing or west of me are doing to see what we can do here, you know, to change up our fertility program and get that higher ROI because that's what we're after. You know, our yields are, are, are ticking up, but the ROI that we can make is really on what we can do to, to save the money on the front end. Well, and now fertilizer prices in general have come have backed off from their high. They retreated a bit, but you're still talking about uh, historically. You know, in the old days, Johnny, and you know this, it was always just throw more fertilizer at it because it was generally a payback and it was inexpensive. It has not fertilizer has not been inexpensive the last several years, so that's a good one that you think the fertility. Also, if you know the fertility program that they do, they're always willing to change it. That's right. <laughs> that every year they're like they're tweaking it. So that's the cool thing is like, hey, we're going to try this this year, and so that's good. So you think that you're going to glean uh, a lot of learning from uh, fertility programs within the guys in Extreme Ag. What else do you think that uh, you're you either have learned or hope to learn more about from the Extreme Ag? Well, I like looking at their planner setup, seeing what products they're putting out or how they're putting out these products on their planner. Because if you can see what somebody else is doing successfully, that saves you a lot of time and effort into buying the wrong product that doesn't fit the application. So I really study what they're doing on their planners uh, network, talk to them at, you know, commodity classic and different things to see what they're doing. And then the next big thing I'm kind of looking at, we do have a lot of hill ground. So drain tile is not as important as it is for a lot of people, but we do have a lot of Creek bottoms in our area that I really am looking forward to getting some more insight on the drain tile and trying to figure out how to make that be a part of uh, our operation. I'm from Northern Indiana. In fact, we used to have a plant in my county called Magenica Tile. They m dug out clay and cooked it in ovens and made it into clay drainage tile. I've been around from the time I was born. I understood drainage tile is just something you do because, you know, we get 40 inches of precipitation. I joined up with Extreme Ag and they say, we got this sponsor called ADS. They make drainage. I'm like, sure. And then we start finding out that Chad Henderson has never put in drainage tile and Matt Miles is never, I'm like, I, I guess I hadn't thought of that. So in your part of the world is drainage tile new? Is it something that nobody's doing at all? Something you've kind of heard of kind of where are you on the whole drainage thing? Well, right here in our County, there's very, very little drainage tile put in. 
but you go a little bit north towards Kentucky, there's more and more drain tile that's been put in. And there's a few guys kind of getting in the business to try to start pushing the drain tile and offering a service to do it. And, you know, I'm more one of those hands-on guys. So I'm going to continue to look at the equipment different guys are using and see if we can either purchase it or get a partner with it and go that way. Yeah. Have you been like to Chad's where he's got, he's got the lift station and the whole deal. Have you been to there? I, I have not been to his farm and actually seen that. I've, uh, I've seen those at the commodity classic and how all that works. I, I thought that was, that's what I'm going to have. Cause a lot of our areas, if it's not draining, it's usually because the ditch is the same level as the field. Right. Right. So, right. Yeah. Okay. So, um, the three things that you either are already learning and hope to learn more about fertility programs that the guys are using planter setups because you've got some hilly, uh, ground. And by the way, I don't think if you, I don't think it matters what kind of ground you have planter setup is paramount to, you know, seed to soil contact spacing and all that. Um, probably doesn't matter whether you have curvy ground or not. That, that's right. And I mean, I look at it more like, a planter is a several year investment. When you buy one, you really, <clears throat> we might trade tractors every year, but planters we usually hold on to for a few years. So I want to make sure I buy the right planter. If I'm going to order it from the factory and get the right attachments put on it, that's going to fit my operation the best. Hey farmers want to save money on fertility without sacrificing yield harvest last season's nutrients for this season's crop with extract powered by accomplish. I'm Damian Mason. I'm host of Extreme Ag's Cutting the Curve, and every day we talk about ways to be more profitable, to do better by your soils, and I'm telling you this might be the answer. Extract, powered by Accomplish, is exclusively available from Nutrient Ag Solutions. So contact your local Nutrient Ag Solutions crop consultant to learn more. Those are the three things, fertility program, planter setup, and drainage that you're um, that you're excited about getting. What do you think that you can contribute? And you don't, don't worry about being arrogant. Nobody thinks that. What do you think that you can contribute when you look at what's Johnny Varrell really good at? Or what does uh, West Central Tennessee farming teach you that you can teach others? What, what thing that is either personal specific, your farm specific, or your geography specific you can bring to others? Yeah, so we started doing vertebrate rate fertility in 2002, 2001, 2002. And I was able to incorporate that into our farming operation because I was able to show my dad and grandfather how we could save money with it. So we really ramped up our vertebrate grid sampling in 2002. So most of our farms have been sampled on grids, two and a half acre grids since the early 2000s. So the yeah. fertility. So, so, 20, so 20 years ago, grid sampling kind of became a thing about 20 years ago, but not very uh, well adapted. So you you were kind of at the front end of doing grid sampling on your soils. Yeah, it was all because of where I went to college that we were kind of in the cutting edge of precision farming. So it allowed me to, to get the leading edge of that and kind of understand and do a lot of it myself. And so to me, it's easier for a farmer to start incorporating in his farm if he understands why he's doing something. So like if I pull soil samples, I was able to write my own fertility, you know, recommendations and stuff like that. And you can visually see what you're doing is working. You're leveling out the field. You're getting a more uniform fertility program across the field. So in the early 2000s, when we started doing that, we had so, so much variance from one end of the field to the other, whether from the soil types changed, the yield yeah. level changed. So that really allowed us to get a better uniform fertility program out there. So that's really what we try to capitalize on. Okay. Variable rate fertility program uh, is, and, and that's really also then about your soil sampling. So we've, we've covered that a few different ways here on uh, the extreme ag stuff. And I'd like to hear what you got on that. What's another thing that you can contribute? So we, we raise uh, 
corn and wheat and we raise and we harvest them at a very high moisture. So we're able to go out and uh, we, we usually start harvesting corn around 30%, which I know there's some other guys in the program that do that too. And we're doing it to capitalize on our early premium at a local uh, processing plant for the corn. The ethanol plant somewhere like that is usually paying a pretty good premium in the middle of August for that corn. Yeah, so you, where you are geographically, you could be you can grab thirty percent corn in mid-August. Uh, supplies are tight, so certain processors are are paying a premium for corn. Obviously, you're at a positive basis. It offsets that. I mean, you just talk about getting like four cents per uh, or five cents per point. So if it were that way, you'd be talking about like seventy-five cents, but it doesn't matter. So what is it? How much? How, how much is the usually worked out for you? It's usually under 10 cents, you know, for that, for a 10 point removal. So at 15 point removal, it is probably around 15 cents realistically. So I've got a very efficient dryer. I've got a mixed flow dryer. It's very efficient. We put it in, I guess, about four years ago. Uh, we upgraded our dryer because so you're, not you're not, you're not taking 30% corn to the ethanol plant. You're taking 15% corn, but you can, you, you can justify the, you can justify uh, the dry down. Absolutely. And for us, we don't really have a real local elevator. There's an inland elevator that's about 20, 20, 25 miles from us that we can go to. But the ethanol plant, the uh, major elevators on the Mississippi River are about 60, 65 miles. So from a trucking aspect, we've got a grain facility that we bring all of our grain in here, process it, dry it. And then if the premium's there, we'll send it out. If not, we'll sit on it. So we bring all of our soybeans here, all of our wheat. And we do the same thing with wheat. We yeah, exactly. Before we get into the wheat, what you're saying that you bring everything to your main farming operation and do the dry, whatever you're going to do to it. Um, I guess th that all makes sense. But uh, the bringing in the high moisture corn, you've you've run the numbers that you can bring in, you can harvest it 30% because down there at the ethanol plant, they're paying, you know, what, a buck over board That's or something right. like that? That's right. That's right. And usually every year at the end of August, the first week of September in our area, there's a really good premium. There's a couple of food processors that are paying for yellow corn too now that you can really capitalize on it. For us, it's getting it in. And then the yield aspect, we know it's a five to 10% increase in yield. We've, we've done several uh, trials on our farm. We have a field day that we've kind of showcased that where you harvest corn at 25%, come back three three to four weeks later harvested at 15% and you actually see the, the real yield loss and it's pretty substantial. And it goes back to that phantom, phantom loss. You've heard people talk about that. I've never heard anybody talk about until I joined extreme ag and I started hearing Kelly Garrett talking about it, where there's uh, you know, part, part of the kernel stays in the ear and, and all this kind of thing. Yeah. And then just the harvestability, it allows us to use less equipment, less, less manpower to get our crop out because we can start earlier too. Yeah. So we just kind of utilize what we have and we pretty much start around 30%. We try to be done around 20% and have the whole crop out. So interesting that to clarify, you don't mean that it saves manpower because somehow it's easier, just that it lengthens your season. That's right. That's right. I, instead of having maybe three or four combines running, we can get by with two or whatever the number is. So, so why do you harvest wheat when it's wet? It's the same concept for wheat us. That's right. It's the same concept. We're able to, uh, so we get our wheat usually around the first week of June. Uh, we try to start harvesting wheat. And if we could start, say, five, seven, eight days earlier, we can plant those soybeans earlier. And we know in the month of June, every day is a big yield loss the later we plant, especially the closer to July you get. 
So we try to really start to get the soybeans planted earlier to pick up that yield gain on the soybeans. And a lot of times you have good moisture when you start planting wheat beans. Incidentally, to the person that's from uh, Nebraska or from where I'm from, you're saying, what the hell is he talking about? Because he forgot that he's doing something that most people north of the Mason-Dixon line don't do at all. Double crop bead. Uh, he's double cropping. Yes. So you take your wheat, you take your wheat off a little bit green, but you think that it preserves more yield by doing it that way. Then you do have to dry it. Normally, uh, you wouldn't think of drying wheat. Certainly, the people in Kansas aren't running their wheat through a dryer. It goes on a truck, goes to a mill. You're drying your wheat. Yeah, as long as it'll come out of the trucks, we're drying the wheat. So we have had it where it was not really wanting to come out of the trucks after we harvested it to get it into the grain system. So there is a fine line there where you can get too wet. too wet. Yeah, we actually had a, a sawmill catch on fire one year right next to one of our wheat fields, and it was in the low 30s, and it was pretty tough. But anyways, it's the, the other thing we gain is the test weight because where we are, we get a lot of these June rains that are two, three-inch hard rains. It'll knock the test weight severely out of that wheat, so we can go from – low low 60 pound test weight to mid 50s if you're not real careful so just picking up that that's true true yield gain there in that test weight plus we've had in the past where some of the elevators have reached out to us and asked us about bringing our wheat if we'll hold it because of the test weight they can blend with it if they know what we have so we've kind of figured out a little niche with harvesting the wheat wet it really does pay off every year it doesn't work out because it can set into raining and then when the rain quits the wheat's dry but we always try to to start harvesting wheat, you know, close to that 20% or maybe a little higher too. So <clears throat> yeah, but not so high that it, it gums up and won't fall out of the truck. Uh, yeah. All right. So what you just said though, then there's the big reason of doing this is, and, and we've been talking about this with the other extreme egg. That's why I think it's cool that you're going to contribute on your take on this as we move down the road, that you've got to get your wheat out to give your second crop soybeans uh, a fighting chance. That's right. That's right. It just, it allows us to pick up that premium day length that we have, you know, close to the first of June. And then the moisture we have, like last year, people didn't have their wheat beans planted in our area by the 20th, 25th of June. It got so hot and dry, they never came up. So you can't run out of moisture too. So ideally you harvest your wheat somewhere in the beginning week of June. That's right. And then you got the the planter putting in soybeans right behind the combine. Uh, just right behind the combine. And we've actually planted corn behind wheat uh, a couple of times. And it all just depends on the the price of the corn with the inputs, what we're going to do there. Because sometimes planting corn late isn't really a yield limiting factor like it is on soybeans. We know the later you plant soybeans, it can really affect it. But we have planted corn late under irrigation and made some really good corn. As I say, it, it depends on where you are. You're saying you're in a, you're in a, climatologically you're in an area that you'll still have enough fall and enough season and then and if you can irrigate talk about the mix here um do all your soybeans follow wheat or do you have any that i like chad does wheat beans as my southern friends call them i just always call them double crop beans. he does some that way but he does some more than the conventional and depends he he looks at it as managing equipment and manpower is the reason he switches his i think as, as i remember him saying yeah, we're about two-thirds wheat beans, double crop beans is where we are. So uh, we also look at it, if we can get that ground planted in the fall, then we don't have to plant that ground in the spring. We can wait. We can really concentrate on our corn and early soybeans 
not worry about all this other ground because it's going to be June before we can plant it. So that's one right, reason. So two thirds of your soybeans go in after the wheat, right up, right behind the combine, taking off the wheat, and then your mixture. Uh, so there's about there's a bunch of your acres that get three crops in two years. That's right. That's right. Well, it used to be 50, 50, uh, literally if it went into corn this year, it was wheat, wheat beans next year. And then we've grown in size and we've kind of figured out too, that having wheat every other year, we do a little bit better if we have wheat every three years on some ground too. So you guys that get three crops uh, every two years, you get three crops. Um, is this why you're so much richer than me? Yeah. I don't know about that. Uh, so here's, here's the other thing on your acreage split. Um, when you talked about you threw some cotton back in the mix, what did it come at the expense of? Uh, last year, we just it was just a good fit. Um, we we had kind of cut some corn acres, and we thought we'd put those acres back into cotton. And then if we could figure out how to make it work and make the yield where we want it and get the price where we want it on the cotton, because the price is very volatile on the cotton. In the last two years, it's been extremely volatile, but it's easy to plant soybeans and corn early behind cotton because there's no residue. So in a no-till environment, you have nothing out there to plant through. The ground warms up faster. You don't have the wheat straw, the bean stubble, all that on the ground like you do with double crop beans. Mm -hmm. With cotton, it's just pretty much bare ground. And that's one reason we did it because we were wanting to plant some late March beans this year. And uh, we, we were able to do that. So, Johnny, I cut you off when you were telling me the things that you can contribute. We talked about variable rate fertility and your soil grid sampling. Uh, you think that you were um, uh, at the front end of that, and therefore you'll have 20 years of experience, whereas somebody might only have a few years of experience. Um, remember, we don't we don't ever talk down to – we let other ag platforms do that and, and ag Twitter. We're here to educate, inform, and deliver our insights. So in no way are we being cocky. We're just saying there's something that you've got a lot of experience with in that. Um, harvesting your stuff high moisture uh, as a management tool, as a man, as a time management and labor management and equipment management tool, but then also as a yield bump. And then a few other reasons you gave a bunch of reasons on why you did high moisture corn and wheat. Is there anything else you can contribute that you think that other people that keep up with extreme ag might be like, Oh damn, I never thought of that. Yeah. Uh, <clears throat> you know, I don't, I don't know. It's just like you're talking about the fertility stuff, the grid sampling and all that stuff. There's so many people doing it now. You can look at programs like this and really see what's working and what's not. When we started doing it, it was more handheld devices that would lose GPS and all that. I mean, so I really like how just like on our drying system, people can see what we're doing and I can see what some, you know, other farm map miles or different ones are doing too. It's easy to not make mistakes when you could talk to somebody that is and network. That's what I've really learned over the past few years is trying to network and, yeah. and try to uh, build a support team that helps you in all the different aspects of farming. Isn't it kind of a cool thing? And you're about that age where you start to realize that you didn't know as much 20 years prior or even 10 years prior. And you, you, you're like at that right phase where you're like, man, I'm glad I've been doing this as long as I have. I still have a bunch more to learn. I feel bad for these people that think they can't be taught anything because <laughs> they're just screwing yourself. Isn't it kind of a neat thing? When you're at that right place where you you know what you've learned and you then realize, I got a lot more I can learn. That's right. That's right. And I think keeping an open mind, whether it's row space and whether it's a fertility program or anything like that is, is the key to farming right now because things are changing very fast. And now what equipment costs and different yeah. things we're doing costs, you can't afford to try everything on your own. You kind of need to network and see what other people are doing also. 
Um, pretty hot where you get in the summertime. How many of your acres are irrigated? Percentage? About, about 20%. About 20%. And then uh, you talked about farming with your father. You're 40, so that means if I'm running my math, he's probably pushing somewhere in his 60s. Um, wh- where does the uh, where does the operation go? Does he stay with it? Is he one of those guys that's going to still be running the combine when he's 90, uh, bossing you around? Or is he going to be very politely just uh, – in an advisory role that uh, lets Johnny continue to, you know, grow the operation. What's that look like? Uh, he loves driving the combine, so I can see him staying around for a long time doing that. And my granddad, he was 96, still driving a tractor and a dozier when he passed away. So my granddad was about as hands-on as anyone could be, uh, especially for his age. He was here every day. But we all kind of have our jobs, our, our specialty, so to say. My, my dad is more on the uh, – uh, working in the shop, getting some stuff done there. I'm more in the office getting some business stuff done, working on the computer, that type of thing. So it's always worked really well. I kind of fill in my granddad's role as the, the the manager from a book standpoint of managing our inputs and all that. My dad always did the shop work and got stuff done. And they both kind of, you got to have both. So it just always worked out good. You got to have both. Uh, and that's, that's a fact. This this part is the, the part that I think is where everybody needs to grow. Uh, the business, the desk, the the phone calls, the, the networking, as you said, and still the continuous learning. Um, I'm going to wrap things up here. Johnny Burrell of Jackson, Tennessee, um, third generation farmer and uh, old enough to have a lot of knowledge, young enough to realize he has a heck of a lot to learn. That's I, I think you're at that perfect, you're at that perfect age right there in that regard. Um, closing thoughts, give it to me on the way out the door. Why, why you're excited about being part of extreme ag, why we're excited to have you more importantly, uh, closing thoughts for you. I'm looking forward to this 2023 season. It's definitely, uh, hopefully it's going to go a lot better than the 2022 was for us. And with this partnership here and, and being able to talk to the guys and build a, good support team and see what's going on across the country and maybe see what works one area before I try it this year. Um, that's okay. gonna be, I'm going to let Chad try everything because he's a little farther south. And uh, and Mr. Matt, that way when I start planting a few weeks later, I, I'll just be a couple weeks. All you got to do is just be a couple weeks behind him. But I got, they, they helped out the guys last year. Remember, Chad was going to trial a product and it was an absolute turd. I'm not being mean. It was a company that was going to work with us and the product was just an absolute turd. And uh, Chad said, hey, guys, do not use this input and so uh, you're you're fortunate you're not you don't go first right uh right. <laughs> you're like you're like the, you go third all right his name is johnny morrell my name is damian mason by the way you're going to hear more from johnny because he's participating in the wheat wager that's right 2023 wheat wager that matt miles won last year he got like 121 bushel wheat last year so anyway johnny's going to be a part of that and we'll be talking to him in another episode about why he's bringing his a game and how he's bringing his a game to the wheat wager till next time thank you for being here mr morrell thank y'all Until next time, it's Extreme Ag's Cutting the Curve. That's a wrap for this episode of Cutting the Curve, but there's plenty more. Check out ExtremeAg.farm, where you can find past episodes, instructional videos, and articles to help you squeeze more profit out of your farm. Cutting the Curve is brought to you by Advanced Drainage Systems, the leader in agriculture water management solutions.